Let's turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 3. Now, if you remember, when we started Hebrews chapter 3, we actually looked at verse 1 all by itself. And we spent the entire service just looking at one verse. Well, today is kind of the opposite because we're going to look from verse 7 all the way through verse, I think it's 19. So almost 13 verses, well, not almost 13 verses, 13 verses uh, as opposed to one verse. So we're going to run through this rather quickly in order to get to its point and meaning at the end. And Hebrews, uh, Hebrews is a fascinating book in that, first of all, it's written for believers. It's written for Christians. So people who have an understanding of the faith, people who are new to the faith, people who are growing in their Christian life. But it's a book written for believers to believers, And the author of Hebrews does something rather fascinating throughout the book, and it's not unique to this author, but he gives certain, or her, she gives certain warnings to us about the Christian life. And we're going to get one such warning this morning, and then there's a warning in chapter 4, a warning in chapter 6, a warning in chapter 10, and a warning in chapter 12. And these warnings are not there to confuse you and make you question, am I a Christian or not? They're there to remind you that there is always that possible temptation, even for the believer, to forget God. To forget God. And when you forget God, there's that danger of falling to greater temptation. And so the warning is there to help us stay awake to the fact that the Christian life is an active life. It is a progressing life. It is a life that is constantly moving forward because if you're not moving forward, just like in war, you're moving backwards and you're retreating. And you cannot retreat from your calling in the Christian life. Once you are one of his children, you are forever his child and you have the responsibility of always moving forward in your Christian life. Now, In this section, from verse 7 all the way through verse 11, the author just simply quotes Psalm 95 for a purpose and a reason. So we're going to go to Psalm 95, and then once it switches uh, to verse 7, we'll move back. But in Psalm 95, and you can turn there if you want, click on there, however you get to that uh, in your Bible, Psalm 95, because it's super important that we get a context of what's happening here in Psalm 95, because the whole point that the author is going to be making is based on Psalm 95. Now, a lot of psalms uh, do have at its core, well, that sun is right in my eyes, uh, uh, does have at the core some history of Israel. And so psalms oftentimes repeats the story of the history of Israel throughout uh, throughout the psalm. And this is one such psalm that does it. Psalm 95 starts like this. O come, let us sing to Jehovah. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, 
and his hand formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. I cannot imagine a more joyous psalm starting. It is all about praising God. It is all about acknowledging His goodness, His greatness, His amazingness, His work, His power, His sovereignty, His rule. And it's all about us worshiping Him, declaring it, singing it, praising it, praying it in every aspect, making known His greatness. And then the psalm turns. The psalm turns, and we're going back to chapter 3 in Hebrews because he recites the rest of the psalm here. He says in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, quoting the psalm now, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The warning starts here. Because the people who read chapter 3 of Hebrews and saw that scripture being quoted knew everything about Psalm 95. They knew how Psalm 95 started with praise and worship and declarations to God's goodness and greatness. They knew that it was starting as a psalm of amazing magnitude of declaration to God. And they knew that the end of the psalm, which is recited here in Hebrews chapter 3, outlined what seems to be the opposite of what the psalm was talking about. The psalm was talking about worship, and now it's talking about the sins of God's people and judgment coming upon that sin. He's talking about a very specific moment in the history of Israel, in Exodus 17, and also mentioned again in Numbers where Israel was brought out of the land of captivity by the hand of Moses and the leadership of Moses, and the people are excited and joyous, and then the troubles and the groaning and the complaining and the whining started. It first started when they went to the sea, and this huge sea was in front of them, and the army of the Pharaoh was behind them, and they whined and complained to Moses, you brought us out here to die. Thanks a lot. And God, in incredible, infinite mercy and wisdom, parts that Red Sea, and they walk on dry land towards the promised land, and God shuts the sea, and the entire army of the Pharaoh was drowned and destroyed. By miracle, not by wind, but by miracle it happens. And then Israel starts their journey, which should have taken them at tops, at slow speed, two weeks to walk to the promised land. But in that two-week period, 
they whined and complained and whined and complained and fussed and whined and complained nonstop. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's too dark. It's too light. It's, there's sand everywhere. Well, you're in a desert. No kidding. And we're thirsty and we're hungry and, oh, we're going to perish. And so God says, you know what? Moses, I want you to go over to that area and I want you to give them water and just simply declare that there's water for you. And the rocks will gush forth with water. But Moses at this time, just weeks into the journey, is so frustrated with the people that he goes up to that rock and he slams it with his staff. And God is incredibly displeased. Because God didn't instruct Moses to strike the rock with a staff, but to speak to it, that it would give forth water. So not only were the people of Israel whining, complaining, and being immature about their doubts with God, but even Moses misrepresented God to the people. That's what they're talking about in this psalm and in this chapter. That moment in which Israel grumbled and complained and doubted God, and the moment in which Moses misrepresented God. And God looked at that, that whole scenario of mistrust, and that whole scenario of Israel not believing God and taking him at his word, and God judged that generation, the adults that came out of the land of captivity, and said, for the next 40 years, you're going to wander. And you're not going to enter into the promised land. You may see it, but you're not going to take possession and enter of it, including Moses. Moses never entered into the promised land. He saw it on a mountaintop, and then God took him because he misrepresented God to the people. What are we supposed to learn from that? What are we supposed to learn from Psalm 95? A joyous song about worship in the first six verses, and then it turns in the last few verses to a warning. Do not harden your hearts, as in the days of the rebellion or the days of the wilderness, where your fathers put me to a test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What are we to make of that? Verse 12, I think, just summarizes it for us. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There has always been a temptation in the Christian church to look at the Jewish-Israelite history, especially the Exodus and that wilderness traveling, and think to ourselves, those poor people. They were so immature in their faith. They were only looking at their circumstances. I 
would have followed God. I would not have complained. I would have been satisfied with what he gave me. I would have been different. We all would have been different. We wouldn't have been like them. We know better. We're stronger in our faith. We never would have doubted God because our circumstances looked insurmountable. We would have continued Psalm 95 to the end with just praises. God never could write about our distrust, our disbelief, our neglecting him, our misrepresenting him. That's, Israel had that problem, not us. And we fall into that trap that we're so much better than they are that we never would have done that. You know what? Not only would you have done the same thing, but I would have. I would have too. And so that's why the author has to give us the same warning, is you need to learn the lesson of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are not just about lessons, but we need to be forewarned, just like they were, that God speaks clearly. At this moment, he speaks clearly about who he is and what he expects of us. And if we harden our heart, if we ignore it, if we get sleepy about it, if we get inconsistent, if we say, it doesn't apply to me, or I don't need that warning, I'm too strong, I'm too big, I'm too... I'm too mature in my faith. I'll never leave God. I'll never forget him. I'll never doubt him. When we get to that point where we assume we are better than the children of Israel, I know you will repeat their errors. And so that's why God in the New Testament warns us of their history not to become our history, but for us to be better and do better. And God gives us so many things to benefit that, to improve upon that. And the first is that beautiful warning in verse 12. Take care, brethren. Pay attention to this. Wake up from your slumber, easy American Christian living, and notice that this is for you. It's not for somebody else. It's for you. Lest there be any in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. How fearful would that be to fall away from the living God? How fearful would that be to forget him, to deny him, to doubt him. There's no room in God's family, in God's church, in his people for doubt. Every time there is doubt in Scripture, you think of one person in particular, don't you? Who do you think of when you think of doubting in Scripture? Thomas! The guy walked with Jesus for three years. He was at the Last Supper. He saw what transpired with Judas and the betrayal in the garden. 
He saw Christ led away in chains and crucified. He saw Christ walk on water. He saw Christ do every miracle you can imagine. If anyone should never doubt Jesus at his word that I will rise again, it had to be his disciples. They saw everything he did, heard everything he spoke, saw every interaction he had with those who were sick and humbled of heart, and every interaction with the self-righteous Pharisees and leaders of the day. Thomas, if he could doubt, if he could at that moment distrust the words of the living God, how much more could we doubt God? Have you ever doubted God? (laughs) Yeah, I'll answer that for you. You have. We doubted God that would protect us. We doubted God that he would provide for us. We doubted God that he would take care of all of our needs. We have stressed and freaked out about things that God has promised, I'll take care of you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I cannot wait to get to those verses in Hebrews. I cannot wait because they are my favorite in all of Scripture. Putting an end to doubting completely. But we are prone as humans to doubt God. To forget Him. We are prone even as American Christians to think we can do it on our own. We are not more advanced than the Israelites. We are not better off than the Israelites. We are prone to their same struggles because they're human struggles. And they become highlighted as believers. And they become impossible for us to think, how can a believer do this? And so that might make you think from time to time, as you fall in sin, am I even a Christian? A Christian would never do this, but yet I did. And I did it again and again and again and again. I must not be saved. That's not the point. The point is, Christians struggle with that. Unbelievers don't. But Christians struggle with sin and temptation and the guilt associated with that. Christians struggle with how do I please God? You see, that's the Holy Spirit in your heart bringing conviction. And conviction is good because conviction brings change in his children. How can we bring about some of that change? What steps can we take? Verse 13 answers it for us. Verse 13 says there's some solutions that the author gives us about staying awake and not being lulled to sleep, not dozing off, not daydreaming in the Christian life. He says in verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhorting. What does exhorting mean? I mean, it's a common word, but what does it really mean to exhort someone? Encouraging. Encouraging. What's another part of it? Lived up. You need to be living and consistent with that message, right? But sometimes it's even the words, not of just encouragement. What would you almost say is the opposite of encouragement? Discouragement? Well, yeah, that is absolutely true, so I don't mean that. Correction. Correction. Correction can also be encouragement, right? Encouragement is not just, hey, buddy, good job, keep it up. But encouragement can be, better stay on the right path. You better not fall asleep. You better pay attention. And believe it or not, preaching in this very moment is also called exhortation in Scripture. Exhorting the believers, encouraging them and telling them and instructing them and warning them and correcting them, their thoughts and their actions, to be consistent with the message that they love God and love one another. So exhorting everything that that encompasses is vitally important in the nature of a church. And a church that does not have that, I would be bold enough to say is not a church if they reject that if they downplay it, if they dismiss it, if it's not present. They can't be a church if they're not exhorting the people to live holy, godly lives. It's no better than just going hanging out at a bar. No better. But in that exhorting, there's also this idea of sharing and listening. Because all the exhorting in the world will do nothing if you do not listen, if you are not attentive to it, if you do not apply it and make it your own. So it is incumbent and necessary for us as a group of believers to exhort one another towards godliness and goodness and holiness and rightness not just in our thinking, but in our actions. It has to be there. Because that guards us against whining, complaining, arguing, fussing, and doubting. If we are telling each other, don't doubt, don't fuss, don't whine, don't complain, don't be depressed, don't be angry, don't be sad, stay steadfast. Live! Strive, endure, attack, progress. All words that are healthy for the Christian in their Christian life to engage in. This is for us. But look at how these verses connect in verse 15 and, or 14 and 15 
For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You see, this sharing and listening have a point. Exhorting is not... Preaching is not um, one-sided. All right? It's not one-sided. This isn't just, okay, this is Pastor Tim's time where he works 30 minutes a week. It is also your time where for 30 minutes you engage with what's being read and spoken. You engage in it. You listen to it. You encourage one another. You exhort one another. You make it your own because you do not want to be that person that hears it and then ignores it, dismisses it, doubts it, or sleeps through it because you do not want to be like the wandering Israelites who doubted God. And they doubted God in like every way possible. They doubted God to the point where they erected a golden calf. And I know this is not a sermon on Exodus, but it's a fantastic book worth every bit of your time to read it and live it and love it. But they even doubted God to the point where they made for themselves an image of a calf and worshiped it, thinking, well, you know what? God is strong, so maybe, and, and we haven't seen him in a couple, couple days. He's up on a mountain with Moses. We don't even know if Moses is alive anymore. And how could they turn to false worship so quickly, making an idol? You see, because doubt is so slippery fast that when you start doubting, did God really say, did God really say? Did God really say? What should that remind you of? Did God really say? Those are the words of the devil. The devil speaks doubt. Did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really say? From the very beginning, he has been a master of lies and seeded doubt in God's children and even tried to seed doubt in Christ himself. And that didn't work because Jesus was constantly exhorted by Scripture. Every single temptation that Jesus had, he answered with, but God has said, it is written. He always went back to God's exhortation. Always went back to what has God said and lived it and believed it. Regardless of what the circumstances looked like for Jesus, he always went back to, but it is written. It is written. The very same thing we're to do. It is written. What does it say? How does it correct? How does it encourage? How does it challenge me? Then in verse 16 through the end of the chapter, the author once again hits us with that question. Can this really happen to me, though? I mean, can it really, really happen to the believer in the New Testament church? 
in America, some 2,000 years after the events of this New Testament taking place, can this possibly happen to me? I have so much more benefit. I mean, I have a fuller understanding of Jesus Christ than the Israelites did. True. I have a fuller understanding of what the resurrection is. True. I have a fuller understanding of heaven and eternity. True. I have a fuller understanding that God is also my Father. True. I have a fuller understanding of the promises. True. But Israel had a lot going for it. They saw God visibly present in a cloud and in a pillar of fire, visibly seeing the ground shake and move as the sea parted, physically seeing water being provided, quail and manna out of the sky being given to them, constantly seeing miracle after miracle, the ten plagues leading up to the exodus, all by God's hand. They saw things that we never have. And I think that's why the warning in verse 16 through 19 is there for us. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who had left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they who were unable to enter because of unbelief. You know, that's not saying that they were rejected by God and were not part of his family. You see, entering into God's rest is not always entering into heaven. This was a physical promised land that represented God's covenantal blessing upon Abraham and his descendants. And there were rewards and benefits in that relationship. And simply because they had unbelief in their heart at a moment didn't mean that God cast them into hell. It meant that they did not enjoy the bounty of that physical moment of a land filled, flowing with milk and honey. Promised land. So I don't want you to get the idea that if you've doubted God, you're not saved. But I also don't want you to leave with the assumption that since you have a Christian life shell, that you show off from time to time, that you are automatically going to heaven. You only go to heaven for one reason, and one reason only. Only one reason. It's because Jesus paid for your sins and died upon a cross for your sins and you believe it and make it your own. Doubting him like Thomas hurts you at the moment 
embarrasses you at the moment, and you need to be reconciled with God through confession and forgiveness at that moment. But doubting him is not the end. I, I come to this point so often in scriptures, messages, and, and preaching, and exhortation, that there are sometimes I, I just don't know what words I can possibly say to awaken and convince you. Your personal understanding and belief that Jesus Christ is who he says he was, lived a life like he said he did, and died a death like Scripture says he did, and rose again like Scripture says, I want you to believe that. I want you to love that message. I want you to depend upon that message because I know at death, if God gives you the blessing to know that death is coming in your life and you know that your last breath will be here, I want you to know with certainty I believe that Jesus Christ is mine. And I believe that the Father closely and strongly guards my life, that nothing can separate me from him, even death itself. I want you to believe that. I want you to live it. And I want you to tell the world what Christ has done for you and has promised for you. I've kind of extended my time a little bit, so I'm going to ask the elders to come up and the band as I close us. If there is anything humanly possible that I can do to convince you of this truth, let me know. We'll grab coffee, we'll grab lunch, something. I don't care what it is. But don't live in fear and doubt of what death may bring. Don't be an Israelite and doubt God's gracious glory in light of all of his truth. Let me convince you of the greatness of God's word. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this blessed time of worship and praise to your name because you are a great God. And Father, thank you for letting us celebrate communion and the Lord's Supper that we might be reminded that the great relationship we have with you was only possible through the sacrifice of your Son. Help us, Father, to believe this with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, guard us again against doubt and put within us a humble, contrite heart that loves to listen to your word and follow it in our lives. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen.
As we finish up, if you would stand with us.
May the incredible, great goodness of God be with you this week and oversee you this week and protect you this week. Until we gather again next Sunday, God bless and have a safe week. Bye, everyone.